I'm an Alabama, you are down Alabama. My name is folks. Hi, y'all. It's good to be here. It really is. It's tough to be here and look out on this front row. <laughs> that takes courage. <laughs> but, yeah, I really wasn't talking about you, though, Jonah. <laughs> Those folks that I was talking about them know who they are. <laughs> Oh, it's just great to be here. I thank you for inviting us up here and, and allowing Jordan and I to come and be a part of your party. I love these parties. I love these celebrations. And, and uh, like Shirley said earlier, this committee has done a great job. It really has. Uh, I don't know of anything that could have been done to make it any better. And uh, but I'm just glad to be here and glad you allowed me to be a part of it. Now, I want to do a couple of things before I tell you a little bit about me, and, and I've been trying to trying to do this lately uh, from the podium, especially when I'm speaking in an open meeting, and I know that there's some sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous in the room with me. And what I'd like to do for just a second, if you're sitting in this room with me and you are a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd like to talk to just you for just a second. And what I'd like to say to you is I'd just like to say thank you. And I just don't think we do that enough. You see, there's a couple of reasons that I want to thank you that are very important to me. The first reason that I want to thank Alcoholics Anonymous is I want to thank you for being there 11 years ago when my guy reached out and had it. You see, I didn't have her anymore. The bottle had her, and I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't fix her, and I couldn't get her back. And I just about drove myself crazy, and I hope that you'll be convinced of that before I get through today. I just about drove myself crazy trying to get her sober and keep her sober, and I couldn't do it. And when the time came for her to reach out her hand, she reached out her hand to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you had the hand of AA there. You took her in, and you loved her, and you taught her how to live sober. And as a result of that, we've been able to put this relationship back together. And as already stated, if you behave until next April, we'll celebrate number 30. And we couldn't have done it without rooms like this for the folks checking out you. And I thank you for that. But I want to thank you for another reason, too. I want to thank Alcoholics Anonymous for knowing from the get-go that this thing called alcoholism is a family disease. You see, I know that you knew it from the beginning because I read your book. I'm one of those Alanons that believes in reading and studying the textbook Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me qualify that for you. I did not say put down your Alanon literature. Got accused of that one time, so I have to make this plain. We've got dynamite literature in Alanon, and I didn't say put it down. What I said was find some extra time and get yourself a copy of the textbook Alcoholics Anonymous and read it and study it. Two chapters in there, the eighth and ninth chapters that were written to us anyhow. And that's what, says, that's what tells me that you knew from the beginning that this thing called alcoholism is a family disease. And what happened, you see, some almost 16 years after, after AA came into being, when it was time for Al-Anon to come into being, and we stepped forward and we said, can we have your 12 steps too? You loved us and you cared about us enough that you said, yes. You can take our 12 steps. And you can learn to live happy, joyous, and free. And it not be dependent on what another person does or does not do. And I just want to publicly thank Alcoholics Anonymous for allowing us to use the way of life that you prepared for us. Our beloved co-founder Lois said in some of her last writings, she said, AA did all the work, we just came along and reaped the benefits. And that's from the voice of that's, that's from Lois. And I believe that. I believe it, and I thank you for having the groundwork done. And for folks like Liz over there, they've been around here for a long time, sharing a message and making sure that this thing stays pure and it stays strong. And I thank you for that. I really do. You know, when I introduced myself to you, I introduced myself as being from Hewittown, Alabama, and I am. But my home group's in Bethlehem, Alabama. Now, that's a distance of about five miles. There is a group in Hueytown, Alabama. Both those groups lay claims on me. The Hueytown group claims I belong to Bessemer, 
<laughs> and sometimes my own group claims I belong to Huey Cass. <laughs> so just tell you a little bit about me. But I also introduced myself as being an Alamon. And we'll talk about that for just a minute. So you see, when I got here a little over 11 years ago, I thought being married to my real life alcoholic made me an Alamon. And what I've learned over the past 11 years is that being married to my real life alcoholic qualifies me for Alamon. It does not make me an Alamon. And there's several things that I have to do, that Bo has to do, in order to stand up here today and tell you that I am a member of Alamon. And I'd like to share two or three of those things with you. And the reason I want to share them with you is because there might be a newcomer or two around here. And these are some of the things that I didn't find it necessary to do the first seven months that I was here. And I wasted seven months. Not really wasted, but I wasted a lot of it. I wasted a lot of time and energy. So the first thing I share with you that I have to do in order to tell you I'm an Alamon is I've got to go to some meetings. Yeah. we got a world full of people out there that are claiming to be part of our fellowship and they never darken the door of a meeting. I've got to suit up and I've got to show up and I've got to occupy that church. Now that ain't all of it, but that's a big part. That's the beginning of it. See, old Milk up in Cleveland explains it this way. He says, I can take that chair and I can take it out there to the back of the lot and I can set it in the middle of that chicken coop and I can sit down in that chair in the middle of that chicken coop every day for 20 years. And guess what? I ain't never going to be a chicken. But here's the flip side. If I occupy that chair in the middle of that chicken coop every day for 20 years, at the end of 20 years, I'm going to know a whole lot about how chickens operate. And I'm going to know a whole lot about how the successful chickens get it done. You get my meaning? Booting up, showing up, occupying that chair, being in there with those that have come before us and have prepared this thing for us. We're going to learn a lot from it. Just from being but this is a program of action, so there's some things that we got to do. The next thing I share with you, in order for me to tell you that I'm an Al-Anon, is I've got to have a home group. Now, let me explain that to you. First seven months out here, I didn't have a home group. I was going to a lot of meetings and occupying a lot of chairs. That treatment center that my wife went through told her she had to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and we did. And if you're an Al-Anon, you understand that. We did. So was going to a lot of meetings over here and over yonder and over there. And you see, there was nothing wrong with me when I got here. Okay? I was well. And I was just going to make sure she was in the other room. And I wasn't lighting anywhere. And the deal is that I wasn't lighting long enough to let you know anything about stuff. And you see, it wasn't until I got near home group and settled down and did a few other things that I began to open up and let you know something about those. And I began to make some changes in my life and began to experience some spiritual growth. So it's necessary for me to have that home group in order to do that. I don't know if any of you AAs realize it, but us Alanons have egos too. And it's there in my home group in Bethlehem, Alabama, that this boy's ego is taken care of. I've got a group of gals there that know about ego deflation. And they know how to take care of me. They don't allow me to blow that smoke. They don't allow me to lie to them. They'll stick their finger in my face and they'll make me get right and get honest. But there's something even more important to me today about my home group. Because you see, I've been around this thing and in this thing long enough that I begin to reap some of the benefits of this way of life. Some of the good things that begin to come about. And along with those rewards comes something called a responsibility. And it's there in the home group in Bethlehem, Alabama that I fulfill my responsibility to Alan. It's there in my home group that I show up early and I stay late. It's there in my home group that I'm there on group conference night and I'm there on election night and I'm there on business meeting night where I can have my vote and my voice in the way things go. It's there in my home group that I can show up early and make sure the talk is made and I can put out literature. And it's in my home group that I can make sure that my, I have my voice and making sure that my group stays within the tradition so that it will be strong and so that it will be just as pure and just as strong 11 years from now as it was 11 years ago when I walked in the door. If you haven't got a home group, think about what I've just said. If we don't take care of this thing, if we don't protect it, and we don't keep it pure and keep it within the tradition, where's our program going to be 11 years from now? 
And I want it to be just as pure and just as strong. So that when you show up in my home church, the hand of Al-Anon will be extended to you, just like it was extended to me 11 years ago. The next thing I share with you that I have to do in order to tell you I'm an Al-Anon is i got to have a sponsor. Now, I think sponsorship's the most talked about and least utilized thing in our fellowship today. Everybody says, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get a sponsor. Nobody talks about what a sponsor is, what a sponsoree is. We call them pigeons. What a pigeon is, there's a story behind that. <laughs> in my home group in Bethel, Alabama, we have meetings on sponsorship, and we encourage sponsorship. We utilize sponsorship. Um, I think there's a special place in heaven for sponsors. I really do. I think God's got a special place up there for these folks that are just crazy enough to take us new summers home and work with them. Yeah. Um, first seven months that I was here, I sponsored myself. And I don't recommend that to anybody. I just don't recommend it. The last thing that I share with you that I have to do in order to tell you I'm an Alanon is i got to take those 12 simple steps that we read. 12 simple steps for a very complicated person. And with the best of my ability, I've got to incorporate them in my life on a daily basis. Getting up every day, suiting up, showing up, putting one foot in front of the other, going out there, living those steps to the best of my ability and being the best bow that I can be today. Some days I do pretty good with that. Some days I don't do so good with it. But you know what I've come to realize? It's not that important how good I do or how, how good I don't do. The important thing is that I get up every day and I make the commitment and I take the action. And I go out there and I am a part of it. And I just share these things with you because these are some of the things that I didn't do when I first got here. Because you see, I got here well. And it took me seven months to figure out just how sick I was. And uh, you might consider some of these things in your own program. What I want to do now is take a little time and tell you a little bit about me. And uh, in order to do that, I have to go back and start with this simple statement. I was born at a very early age. Now, it's necessary for me to go back and start there because, you see, I was born into what I've come to believe is a great breeding ground for A.A., Al-Anon, and Al-A-P. I was born into a very strict, very religious Southern Baptist home. And I was taking to church Sunday morning, Sunday nights, and on Wednesday nights on a real, regular basis. And, but what's important is that it was there in that Southern Baptist Church in Hueytown, Alabama, that I formed a conception of God that I was going to bring into adulthood with me that was going to cause me some problems. Now, it wasn't the church's fault. I know that back there in that Baptist Church, they talked to me about God being loving and God being forgiving. But you know what I brought into adulthood with me? God of you. God of you. And I had God sitting up there in that great white throne and he had that big scoreboard up there and he had Bo's name on it. And he was keeping tabs on Bo. And every time I did something good, there was a little check. Every time I went and did something bad, there was a big X. Every time the big X went up there, there was a price to be paid. And you see several years down the road when the disease of alcoholism reared its ugly head in our home. And things got as bad as they had to get. You see, I never stopped praying, but my prayers became the why me prayer. And how could you do this to me, God? Because you see, I looked on children drinking as a punishment to me for something that I had done. God was punishing me through her. And this was my relationship with God when I finally got to you people. Now, being, being raised in this fairly, fairly uh, functional home, my mom didn't drink, my dad didn't drink, we went to church every time the doors were open. Uh, I'm not so sure we were that spiritual, but we were darn sure religious. Uh, I wasn't subjected to any drinking. God gave me just a little bit of sportsability, and I got involved in sports in school, and, and, and I never was around the drinking crowd. Uh, alcoholism's rampant in my family tree. I, I got an aunt that Shirley uh, uh, talked about this morning that, that coming Valentine's Day, she'll pick up a 32-year kid, and I'll call it tonight. Her husband, Uncle James, went on to that big meeting in the sky, about a year and a half ago with uh, 30 years of continuous sobriety. Got another uncle out there with about 10 years sobriety. Got a younger brother with four years sobriety. Uh, we could get our bunch together and just have one heck of a meeting. 
We really could. But I never was subjected to this. I never was around any of it. And, uh, and so the deal is that I didn't drink. Uh, I met Shirley in my mid-teens. You heard her story. She didn't drink. She came from that totally different background. Didn't drink for different reasons. But the deal is she didn't drink. So I didn't drink. She didn't drink. We met. We dated for five years and we didn't drink. No drinking in our relationship. But after five years, we finally decided we were going to be able to get along. And we set the date and we got married. And we set out on this thing called the Great American Dream. Well, let me tell you about our Great American Dream, what it consisted of. It consisted of something called a dollar bill. The dollar bill thing. So see, both of us have been taught all our life that successful people have lots of stuff. Have lots of stuff. And here was our purpose for life. We knew nothing about why we were here. But here was the deal. We were both going to have good jobs, work real hard, and, look, and make lots of money so we could buy lots of nice stuff. Now, the problem with that is if we buy something nice and you live down the street, and you buy something nicer, we've got a problem. That meant that we had to go ask for a raise. We had to take on a second job. We had to quit and get a better job. We had to go deeper in debt. We had to do anything in order to buy something just a little bit nicer. And that's about the use. And this is the way our life was going to be. This is what we had planned. Work hard, make lots of money, have lots of nice stuff, and that means you're successful. And so we got mad and we set out on this great American dream, and we were pretty good at it. Shirley had a good job, I had a good job, and we were making pretty good money. Didn't take us but a year, we saved up enough money for that first down payment on that first little home out there in Utah. We're rocking along. Three and a half years after we were married, God gave us the most beautiful, blonde-headed, blue-eyed baby boy that a daddy could ever want. And Mike became a part of the great American dream. Seventeen months later, long comes Sissy, brown-eyed, just as healthy as she could be, beautiful girl. And Sissy became a part of the great American dream. And we sat down and we took stock. We had two kids, and we had two cars, and we had two jobs, and we had a, a home. And everything we had was mortgaged to the hip. And, and we are happy. We are happy living the great American dream. But the great American dream had to have those two patients. The girl goes back to work. And when she goes back to work, she's asked to join this social sorority, and she does. And it was at one of those sorority dances down there on the Warrior River in the summertime. Kids at home with a babysitter. Warm. Soft music, soft light. The moon reflecting off the river. And I mix my wife the first drink of alcohol she's ever having in life. And I say, here, honey, drink this. And it wasn't but just a few years later, she was right up in my face. And she was shaking that finger. And she was saying things like, Bo, if you had never given me that drink, I wouldn't be the way I am today. Now... Now remember, I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism. What I knew was that our lives were changing and that things were getting worse. And our financial situation was deteriorating. And our marriage was getting rocky. And I could trace it all back to that night on the Warrior River when I handed her that drink. So you see, what I did was I agreed with her. And I accepted responsibility for all those things and absolved her of any responsibility. And I took on a load of guilt that was to almost break my back before I got to you people. Almost get to see more than I could bear. Now, you know, I can stand up here the rest of the afternoon and share war stories with you. And I like war stories. I love them. They're fun sometimes. You know what war stories are. War stories are when we're sitting around and I tell Joe about cutting my finger and it was pretty bad, took two band-aids. And Joe said, oh, Bo, that's nothing. Man, I cut my finger and it took 17 stitches all the way around it to put it back together. And then John's sitting there with us and John says, oh, you guys, that's nothing. I cut my finger off and it grew back. <laughs> you know, if you've ever been in a newcomer's meeting, you know about war stories, okay? And I love war stories. 
But rather than, than share war stories with you, what I'd like to do, because I found out something about war stories over the past few years. I found out that my war stories and your war stories are the same. The times are different, the names are different, and the places are different. But you know what's the same? The pain. The pain is the same. And rather than talk about war stories, what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is talk about some of the pain that I experienced as a result of the disease of alcoholism in our home. And the first pain I share with you is this pain of guilt that I told you about that was continuing to grow and mount every day as the drinking continued and as things got worse that I couldn't do anything about it. And the next pain I share with you is a pain called anger. I don't know about you, but let me tell you about me. On a good day, I got up angry and went to bed angry. And on a bad day, I got up angry and I went to bed in a blind running rage. And toward the end of Shirley's active drinking, if you had set me down, I probably could not have told you who or what I was angry at or about. Hell, I just knew I was angry. I was just living my life angry. About a pain called resentment. And I didn't even know what a resentment was till I got here and you taught me what a resentment was. But as I look back, I know I was living my life full of them. Because you see, I know that I resented you if you lived up the street from me and you had nicer stuff than I had. You see, the nice stuff was slipping away. We weren't able to afford it like we used to. And I resented you if you lived up the street from me and I saw you out in the yard with your children and your spouse doing things together and laughing and enjoying did you see, we weren't doing things together anymore. We weren't enjoying each other anymore. And I knew that I resented you if you worked at the bank and you wouldn't honor our checks just because there wasn't any money in the account. <laughs> Didn't you know the check was in the mail? But you know, most of all, I was in his job. So you see, God was behind all of this. And this whole thing was a punishment to me because I had given my wife that first drink back down there on the Warrior River several years prior to that. And I was in this job. How about a pain called loneliness? And I hear alcoholics talk about alcoholism being a disease of loneliness, and I believe you. What I want you to know is you don't have a corner on the market. I know about loneliness and I know about isolation and it doesn't have anything to do with how many people are in the room. Some of the loneliest times of my life have been in crowded rooms, surrounded by what I thought was the best friends I had in the world at that time. You see, my wife's a kitchen drinker. She worked every day and got off work at 4 o'clock. She was home at 4.30 and at 4.31 she had a drink in her hand. And this was pretty much a daily thing. Now, I didn't get off work till 5 o'clock. So you know what I had to do every day at 4.45? I had to call. Yeah, I had to call. So see, I can smell it over the telephone. Yeah, you're shaking your head. There's some other folks in here. Too. And here's the deal. When I called, if she had started drinking, which was usually the case, then at 5 o'clock when I got off work, I didn't go home. Because you see, if I went home, I was face-to-face with that other pain. That pain called failure. I was face to face with my failure. And the only way I knew to deal with that was not be face to face with it. To see, I was the head of the family. I was the husband. I was the father. I was supposed to be able to fix anything that happened. I could fix everything that happened as a result of it. I could fix, pick up the bad check. I could fix the family things that we couldn't go to. I could change the plans that we had made. I could fix everything that happened as a result of it, but I couldn't fix her. And so I was a failure. Now, the ironic part of this is that in every other area of my life, I was very successful. I was at the top of my business profession. I was making megabucks, being paid big money to do what I did, and I was good at it, very successful. I was involved in fast fix softball. And we were traveling all over the southeast on weekends. And we won. We were good. We were successful. 
So I was very successful in my business. I was very successful in my in my recreation. Do you know what I walked around feeling like all day long? A failure. A failure. So you see, at five o'clock I couldn't go home, so I went to the water hole up the street with the guys from work. And we'd sit up there at that water hole around this big round table. And we'd go in there and we'd sit down, there'd be six or eight of us up there. And uh and, and it was the same thing most days. We we swapped war stories. <laughs> Recycled war stories. But I'd go in there and I'd sit down at that table and I'd order a drink and in a few minutes somebody would order a round of drinks and they would bring me another one. And a few minutes later somebody else would order another round of drinks and they would put another one in front of me. I've had alcoholics shed tears when I tell this story. And here's the deal. <laughs> it wouldn't be too long till I'd be sitting there with three and four drinks lined up in front of me that I wasn't going to drink. Yeah. And the thought would go through my mind, you know, why are you here? Why are you here, Bo? And of course, I knew down deep inside I was there because I couldn't go home. And so then the tapes would start running. You know those tapes we have up there? And the tapes would start running, and the tapes would say, wait a minute, Bo, you're surrounded by guys that you work with every day of your life. You're surrounded with the best friends that you've got in the world. Why don't you tell them what's going on at home? Maybe they could tell you something to do that you hadn't thought about. And of course, right behind that, the big red flag went up and said, Johnny, you don't tell that to anybody. Because you see, I was the only man on the face of the earth that had a drunk wife like that. And how do you sit there and tell them, I can't go home because the wife drunk and I can't fix it? You don't tell them. And you sit there in a crowded room and you stuff it. You hurt, and you're crying tough. But you put that smile on that they all have, and you tell them I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine. So I know about loneliness, and I know about isolation. This disease made me the most proficient liar in Jefferson County, Alabama. And I wasn't raised to be a liar. I was raised to know the difference between the truth and a lie. But the disease of alcoholism gave me two new buddies that made it okay for me to lie. And my two new buddies that came with the disease are called justification and rationalization. And you see, my life changed to where if I could justify it and rationalize it, it was okay. It was all right. And it didn't, I mean, I didn't even have to get close to the truth as long as I could justify it and rationalize it. This, um, I don't know about y'all, but we, we had a little problem in our home out there in keeping the power turned down. Every once in a while, the pirates get turned off. You know, I'm sure not anybody else has experienced that. But it got so bad with us that I got on a first-name basis with a lady at Alabama Power Company. She'd call work, and she wouldn't ask for Mr. Templin. She'd say, let me talk to Bo. And she'd get me on the phone, and she'd say, Bo, your power bill's too much past due again. And if we don't have the money by 3 o'clock this afternoon, we're going to turn your power off. And immediately, I'm talking to her on the phone, but I'm fixing to lay one on her, so immediately the smile would come. Now, you know, I'm talking to her on the phone, but the smile has got to be there. And the smile would come, and I'd tell her something like this. Honey, you know what's funny you should call me today? Shirley just told me last night she hadn't paid the power bill. I didn't know it till last night. And uh, so I stopped on the way to work this morning, and I put you a check in the mail. There's no need to turn the power off at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Wait till 8 o'clock in the morning, checks in the mail. This lady allowed me to get away with that for several years. And of course it was a big lie. But you see, this gave me till 8 o'clock the next morning to go to uncle or to go to mother or go to somebody and get the cash money. Be down there when they open at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, pay the power bill. Now, I rationalized that with the kids. See, we had two kids there. They had lessons to get. They had baths to take. They had... Uh, you know, uh, had to have food to eat. We had to have power to do all these things. And it was okay to tell this lie because I was taking care of the kids. I could justify that. That made it okay to do it. After I'd been around this program long enough to get me a sponsor, I was sitting there talking with my sponsor one day, and my sponsor's an old-time sponsor. Joe met her a couple of weekends ago, and he thought she was just, uh, uh, just absolutely a saint. 
And she is in a lot of ways, but Joe has another side. <laughs> and she, she's been in Al Anon since 1961. And, and she's an old time sponsor, and old time sponsors were vengeance. I don't know if any of you got old time sponsors, but old time sponsors love to just bean Just out of the blue, 50 or something. And we were sitting there drinking coffee one day, and, and, and I didn't have anything special on my mind, and, and I thought it was just a nice conversation, a friend decides to zing me. And she looked across the table, and she said, Bo, let's talk about honesty. And I said, well, I really don't think we need to. And she said, well, I do. <laughs> and for some reason, you know, this deal about telling this lady this lie. Now, that was just one of many lies, but this one really had been bothering me. And I shared this story with Fran about how I had told this lady this lie for all these years. And Fran looked at me and she said, let me ask you something, though, because, you see, I justified it to her with the kid. She said, let me ask you something. Was there ever a time you couldn't get the money? I said, oh, yeah, two or three times. What'd they do? I said, hell, yeah, they turned the power off. She said, what'd you do? I said, well, when they turned the power off, we did what any great American family living the great American dream would do. We pulled out that plastic card, that money that you don't have, and we told the kids to pack them overnight bag. We can take them down to the Holiday Inn for a day or two. And, of course, we took them down there until I could get the money to get the car turned back on. So Fran looked at me, and she said, then the kids didn't hurt, did they? I said, well, I guess they didn't. So she said, then it wasn't about the kids. She said, why do you think you had to tell that lie? And we sat there and we talked for a little while, and let me tell you today why I had to tell that lie. And I hope this has never happened to any of you. But in Hueytown, Alabama, when they turn your power off, they got a big red tag, about this wide, about this long, bright red. And it says on that tag, we have turned your power off. <laughs> Because you ain't paid your bill. And when you bring us, and it's got a big blank spot there where they can put a lot of numbers in it, when you bring us this much money, we'll turn your power back on. And what they do with that sucker is they hang it on your front door knob. And you see, that was the deal. See, I could not allow that to happen and allow them to put that on my front door knob because... If I did, and you lived up the street from me, or you lived around the corner, and you happened to come by my house, then you would know. And that was the deal. I could not let you know. We were four individuals living four separate lives. We had the curtain pulled, and we didn't let you in. And we had that great unwritten rule that every alcoholic family has, that rule being we don't talk about it. And the deal inside our house was right before you hit that front door, you stopped, you straightened up, you made sure everything was in place, and you put that six mile on, and you hit that front yard, and you told the world we were fine. And that was the reason I had to tell that lie. I could not allow you to know what was going on inside the walls of our home. It's, uh, this aunt that I talked about that's been in AA for 32 years, Called me at work one day. She said, how's it going out there, Bo? You know, the first thing that happened, I'm talking to her on the phone. You know, the first thing that happened, smile. But I'm thinking, lay one on, ain't Katie? She said, how's it going? I said, oh, it's just going great. She said, no, it's not, honey. I ain't going to listen to that anymore. She said, we're keeping an eye on things out there. She said, how are you and the kids doing? I said, ain't Katie? We've come up with a new deal. And I tell you what, it's, it's working. We like it, and it's working. And she said, what's that? I said, well, every night after Shirley passes out and we get her in the bed, the kids and I meet and we go on our witch hunt. And, and we found all our hiding places, ain't Katie? She cannot hide booze from us anymore. And we go and we find all her booze and we get it all together and I pour it out and I throw the bottles away. And ain't Katie just chuckled real softly. And she said, I didn't know you were that well off financially. And I didn't understand it. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, what does Shirley do the next day on the way home from work? And I said, well, she stops and buys more. And then it dawned on me. And she said, honey, that's not the answer. You need to change that. And I thanked her, and I told her I would change it, and I did. Just two and a half years before my wife went in the street. And, and I changed, and here's what I changed. 
The kids and I still met every night, and we went on our witch hunt, and we found all her booze every night. And I poured her booze out till she went into prison. I used to worry about that, but I don't anymore. I just know it was something I had to do. But here's what I changed. Instead of throwing them bottles away, I set them inches up on the drain board of the sink. Now, see, this was my message to her when she got up the next morning and came in the kitchen. See, we found it, and we poured it out. I'll tell you a little bit about where communication was in our relationship. We were just passing and repassing and sending messages. We did that for two and a half years. And surely we were all sitting around up there in this treatment center one day while she was in treatment. And I, and I told the story about how I poured her booze out and put the inches up on the drain board and her jaw dropped wide open. She said, my God, though, for the last two and a half years I've gotten up every morning walked in the kitchen and said, you dummy, you, pat, you blacked out and drank it all again. She never knew. She never knew. Our family was just like your family. As long as the drinking continued, things got worse. And I continued to do everything that I knew to do to get my gal sober and to keep her sober, and nothing would work. And then that night came in July of 1982 when the kids and I were going to that ball game. And as we started out the door, Mike, who was 15, turned and looked at his mom. And he said, Mom, when we get home tonight, you're going to be passed out on the couch, or you're going to be passed out in bed. And this was the thing that burned through to her. See, we never know what it's going to be. Never know what it's going to be. But you see, as a result of that vow that Shirley had made with God, that she would never lay a hand on one of her kids. And then for the first time in Mike's life, she wanted to slap his teeth out. And that was the thing that got her attention. And we went on to the ballroom. And when we got back home that night and we pulled in the driveway, I knew something was different. Because she was still up. And it was well past her passing out time. And the front door was open and she was waiting on it. And we went in and she, she had been drinking, but she wasn't drunk. And she met us at the door and she told us that she was called a treatment center. And I looked at her and reacted today just like I know I was supposed to. I told her, I said, this is number 1,382. And basically told her I didn't believe it. And I went to bed. And it was the next day when this, insurance, uh, this treatment center called me for some insurance information that I even believed that she was caught. Now, God was directing our lives then, and we didn't even recognize God as being a part of our lives. But you see, God directed us to a treatment center that believed wholeheartedly in treating alcoholism as a family disease. Directed us to a treatment center that believes wholeheartedly in the 12 step programs of AA, Al Anon, and Alateen. And there were some treatment centers in our area at that time that didn't treat us. You see, God directed us to where we needed to be at that point in our life. That's the last little part of our journey to you. Exactly what happened. Now, we, we finally got everything worked out and, and we got ready to take Mama off the treatment. You should have seen us that day. I had a pickup truck. She had to put two lawn chairs in the back of the pickup. Had them a cooler full of Pepsi and had them a big old ghetto blaster radio. And off the treatment we go, me and Mama up front. Taking her up there, going to drop her off, leave her for 28 days, come back, pick her up, she'd be sick, and we'd go on about the great American dream. And that was the deal. And we got up there, and we took her in, we got her checked in. This counselor up there said, I won't talk to you before you go. Pulled me aside, and he said, we have something up here called family week. He said, now, it's going to happen two or three weeks from now, depending on how Charlie does. And he says, when we ask you and since the kids are 13 and 15, we'll want both of them. Want all three of y'all to come up here and stay from Monday to Friday and live in the treatment center and be a part of the treatment process. He said, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I'll send you a letter that'll explain it. I just want to make you aware of it. And we get in the truck and we head home. Now, the kids start in on me on the way home because they're up front with me now. And he said, Dad, we don't know about this thing called family week. So, see, they checked this place out while I was checking her in. They said, we checked that place out, Dad. They don't have a swimming pool. And, see, this would be during August when they were out of school, summer vacation. They said, Dad, they don't even have Coke machines. All I got is fruit juice. There's no video room. They said, Dad, most of all, they don't even have TVs in the individual room. But we don't know about going up. And I, told, I said, settle down, kid. Whoa. We're not going up there for that thing. There's nothing wrong with us. I said, I was just being nice to that guy. That's his job. He's supposed to tell me about it. We're not going. Nothing wrong with us. 
and we went on home. About a week later, I'd get this letter in the mail, and there's a statement in the letter that just jumps off the pages at me. This statement said, we want you to come up here and spend five days and learn how to live with your alcoholic. Now, that made sense to me. And I called the kids in, and I read them the letter, and I read them that statement. And I said, here's the deal, kids. We better go. Because, you see, your mama's going to have to change some things. There's no certain food she can't eat anymore. We know there's certain stuff that she can't drink anymore. There's probably certain books that she don't need to read. And what we need to do is go up there because they're going to school us in how to keep her sober. And we better go. And we sat down and we took a little family inventory. Now, we didn't know that's what it was at the time, but it was. And what we came up with was both kids were out of school, so they were available. This was 11 years ago. We had darn good insurance that was going to pay for it all, so it wasn't a matter of money. I was like any good untreated Al-Anon. I had six years of unused vacation time. You know, you just don't have time to take a vacation when you're trying to sign a six of drugs. You just don't. And the deal is that we had no reason to knock that. And so we went up there, and we checked into that place. They call it Family Week. I call it Hell Week, because that's what it was. I had not been on the property 30 minutes till I was already in my first argument. We got there, and we went there. There was 18 of us family members representing six patients. And they said, you're going to be living down here on this wing, so go down here with your clothes and get checked into your room. We went down there, and they said... Sissy, we want you up at this end of the hall in the room with Miss So-and-so. I didn't know Miss So-and-so. I'd never met her. Mike, we want you down at this end of the hall in the room with Mr. So-and-so. I didn't know Mr. So-and-so. I'd never met her. Bo, you're going to be in this room too. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not so sure I approve of this. I'm not so sure I approve of my children being in rooms with strangers. And the lady looked at me with a big grin and she said, it's not necessary for you to approve of it. <laughs> she said, you have 30 minutes to be get unpacked and be upset in the group room. And so I got busy getting unpacked. And 30 minutes later, we're in the group room. And I didn't figure this out till today of why he did this, but that counselor started with me. I never understood that. And five minutes later, he and I were in a standing up shouting argument. I was shouting at him across the room. And you know what I was shouting at him about? He asked me something about me. And I told him that was none of his business. That we weren't there about me. That we were there about her. And I'd be glad to tell him anything about her he needed to know. <laughs> and I'd be glad to help him with her in any way that I could. And he looked at me and he said, no, Bo, you misunderstand he said, this week is about you. And it's about you learning how you have been affected by this disease called alcoholism and where you might go to do something about you. And I looked at him and I said, if this week is about me, then you lied to me in your letter. There's 18 people in the room. Every one of them got a copy of the letter and he wrote it. But I whip it out and I read it to him. And I said, if this is about me, you lied to me in this letter. And a big grin came on his face, and he started shuffling. He said, yeah, boy, I lied to you. I lied to you. And thank God he did. Because, you see, if he hadn't, I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have gone. And a couple of things happened up there that are real important. First thing that happened up there is they started telling me my wife had a disease. That alcoholism is a disease. And if my wife had a disease, and it, since it is a disease, there were three C's that I needed to get in touch with. The three C's being that I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. Now, I knew I couldn't control it and couldn't cure it. I darn near killed myself trying. What I needed to hear was I didn't cause it. Because you know what I took up there in that treatment center with me? I took that load of guilt. It was about to break my back. And it was up there in that treatment center that I began to gain it, get the information that I needed to know that my wife has to be and I'm not responsible for her having that disease. And way back down there years ago on the, on the Warrior River at that party, I introduced my wife to alcohol, not to alcoholism. And I'm not responsible for her having that disease. The next thing that happened up there is a lady came up there on, on a Wednesday night and held an Al-Anon meeting for her. Yeah, God love her. Beautiful lady. Big radiant smile, one of those winter smiles. 
There was 18 of us family members, and we all had to go. So there was 18 of us in that al meeting that night, and I remember it well. And I remember that there was 18 of us in there, but I also remember that she started most of the statements with both. She talked directly to me. And she was out of the old school, and she didn't believe in, in flying things up. She believed in, in dealing with things just like they are. And she said things to me like, Bo, when your wife gets out of this treatment center, if she's going to stay sober, she's going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I kept waiting. And I said, and? She said, there's no and. It's not we hope she goes, or it'd be nice if she goes. And when she gets out of this treatment center, if she's going to stay sober, she's going to go to AA. Period. Now, if you want to regain any of your sanity and begin to experience any serenity in your life, then you're going to go to Alamon. Period. And then she really threw the kicker in. She said, and if you're going to be any kind of dad, you're going to make sure that those kids are introduced to Alamon. And she said, here's what I want you to do. She said, I want you to go to every meeting you go to at least 30 minutes early and be prepared to stay at least 30 minutes late. Because I want you to go to every meeting you go to with an open heart and an open mind and with open ears, looking for something that's going to help you in your recovery. And she said, I promise you, if you'll go with that attitude, you'll get something. And I've not proved that wrong yet. She said, but you need to go early and stay late because what you need to hear that night may not be said during the meeting. It may be said during the fellowship before or after. And you don't want to miss it. She said, until you fog and clear and you get your head screwed back on a little straight, she said, you pick you out a winner. And whenever that winner does anything, you do it. If that winner gets up to go get a cup of coffee, you go get a cup of coffee. Because winners talk at the coffee pot. And you don't want to miss it. And this was the instruction. This was the instruction. And we, we got Charlie out of treatment on that Saturday on Labor Day weekend in 1982. And we struck off down to Tuscaloosa down there to that AA Al-Anon anniversary. And it's a big anniversary. 500 people hugging and kissing and, and just having a blast. And that was our introduction to this way of life. And we came back home that night. And we sat down as a family group. And we talked into the wee hours of the morning about this thing called family recovery. And we made a conscious decision that we wanted to try this thing. And that started us on a journey that has just been absolutely, indescribably beautiful. It's not all been just a smooth road. Boy, has it been a fine, fine journey, and it's led us to right here today. Now, my wife was real serious about her sobriety, and she started the AA, and she got her a sponsor, and she got her a big book, and she started working steps, and she started getting better. I was visiting the Al-Anon rooms and taking up space in your rooms, and I didn't need the steps, and I didn't need the sponsors, and I didn't need the program because there was nothing wrong with me. And so as a result of that, my wife was getting better and I was getting worse. And the gap between us was getting wider. And finally, after seven months of this, I came home from one of those meetings one night where there'd been another big disagreement. And I was just about to you I was the cause of it. Because I was miserable. And I came home and I sat down and I looked at my wife and I said, I said, you're getting better and I'm not. Tell me what to do. And she said, well, I can tell you what to do. I can tell you what I'm doing. She told me about her sponsor, and she told me about her steps, and she told me about praying. She told me she had a home group. The next night, I went back to Bethman. I made Bethman my home group. When the meeting was over, I went up to a lady named Fran. There's no other male Alamans in our area. And I went up to this lady named Fran. I said, Fran, I need a sponsor. Will you be my sponsor? And she had a temporary lapse of sanity and agreed to. Now, you need to know about Fran. Fran's old enough to be my mama. Friends, a retired school teacher. Just what I needed. Just what I needed. But Fran put a condition on it. She said, Bo, I'll sponsor you under one condition. And I said, what's that? She said, I'll sponsor you, son, if you're ready to go to work. And I said, oh, Fran, I'm ready to go to work. See, going to work meant being up front, sharing the meeting, picking the topic, inviting the speaker. You know, I, she said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. She said, I'm talking about going to work on you. And I said, Fran, how do I do that? And she said, Bo, we have 12 steps to take care of that. 
And she said, if you're ready tonight to make a commitment, to start utilizing these steps in your life on a daily basis, then I'm ready to take you by the hand and walk with you. And that's what the lady's been doing for me for the past 11 years. She takes me by the hand and she walks with me. The first year and a half that she sponsored me, I could call her and I would ride absolutely run it in the ditch before I called her. And I'd call her and I'd just be in the ditch. And she'd just let me just rant and just rave until I ran and raved out. And finally, when I took a deep breath, she'd say, are you about through? And I said, yeah, I'm about through. And she would say, Bo, have you prayed about it? No, I ain't prayed about it. She said, well, we're fixing to, fixing to hang up the phone. Now, you called me back after you prayed about it. And she wouldn't discuss it with me until I'd prayed about it. And I still wanted to talk with her about it, so I went and prayed. Yeah. And it wasn't too long before I could say, you know, Fran, I had a problem the other day and I prayed about it. Yeah. Just walked me right into it. That's the way she does. She sponsors me more as much by example as she does anything. Wasn't too long into that relationship that we both agreed that I needed a man in this thing too. And I told her, I said, there's no male Al-Anon. What do I do? And she said, there's a room full of AAs out there that are working 12 steps. <clears throat> Go get you one you think you can talk to. I just happened to pick the one she's been married to for 45 years. And they've been my guy. First, they kind of adopted me and Shirley when we first came in this thing anyhow. And in the first year and a half we was around here, we thought the first step of the program was getting the cops. Because, you see, Jim was caught. We'd pick up the phone, it'd be Jim, and he'd say, we're going to Jasper tonight to a meeting. And he wouldn't say, would you like to go, or we think you ought to go, or it'd be good if you went. He said, we're going to Jasper tonight to a meeting. When we pull up in front of your house and keep the horn, get in the car. Yeah. And that's the way we were introduced to this thing. We were not given options. Thank God we weren't given options. I, I wish I had... I just wish I had hours and hours to tell you about uh, the ups and downs and the ins and outs of, of, of working with Fran and going through these steps. I can tell you this much. It wasn't too long after she and I started working in these steps, I decided it was time to do an inventory. Now, I didn't find it necessary to ask her or to alert her or let her know. I just thought it was time to do an inventory, so I started on my inventory. And I'm just having all kinds of trouble. And finally, I called, you know, and I said, I need to come by and drink some coffee. Well, that wasn't unusual. <laughs> and I show up, and the coffee's made, and, and me and her and Jim are sitting there. And, and uh, I said, I've been trying to write an inventory, and I'm having all kinds of trouble. And a friend looked at me just as, just right back, and she said, of course you're having problems. I said, friend, where does all this wisdom come from? Ten seconds ago, you did not know I was even trying to write one. Yet immediately you know that I'm having trouble. She said, Bo, if you're trying to do step four, you've got to be having trouble because you ain't through with step, step three. She said, you still got God sitting up there with a scoreboard. And you still got God judging you. And she said, you're going to have to go back and do some work in step three. And Jim reached out his hand. He said, I'd like to take you into the big book now, Heart Anonymous. And he just tapped it to his nostrils. I'd like to do some work with you then. And we did. And my confession is God changed. And it came right out of the big book of our hearts tonight. And my confession of God today is infinite power and infinite love, just as described in the big book of our hearts tonight. As it says in there, this, is, this young man found himself in the presence of infinite power and love. And he had stepped from the bridge to the shore. And he stood in conscious companionship with his creator. I didn't understand the part about bridge to the shore, so Jim took me back in the book and showed me where it's explained. Some of us have already stepped far over the bridge of reason to the desired shore of faith. So all of a sudden now I had me a God that was going to work for me, a God that was going to love me, and a God that was going to forgive me, and a God that was big enough and powerful enough for anything that I might throw at him. And I could go on, and I did. And it catapulted me then into the rest of the cell. Let me share with you, uh, after I got this new concept of God, I still was fighting God. You see, I didn't want to turn everything over like the third step says, or, or, you know, it says we make the decision to turn it over, and I was fighting that because in the Baptist church, when you turned it over, they made you a missionary. 
And I didn't want to be a missionary. You see. And this was a valid fear with me. And I was fighting God, and God worked with me then just like he works with me today. God allowed me to get just as miserable as I wanted to get. God loved me so much, he'll just allow me to get just as miserable as I wanted to get. And I remember I got up one Wednesday morning, and I looked at Shirley, and I said, I don't want to go to work today. And she said, well, take some time off and stay home. I said, I don't want to stay home. She said, what is it you want to do? And I said, I want to get away from both. And I didn't know how to do that. So she said, I was fighting God. And I finally decided to go on to work. I could be as miserable there as I could anywhere in that payment for it. And, uh, and I started to work that Wednesday morning, and I couldn't make it to work. I pulled off. I was busy street in Bethlehem, Alabama. Pulled out of traffic, and I sat there on the side of the road in my truck. And I beat on the stand wheel, and I hollered at God. And I did what I know today was my version of the third step plan. Because what I said was, God, I can't fight you anymore. And God, I don't know what I've got that you want. And God, I don't know where we're going to go with whatever it is I've got that you might want. So whatever it is that I've got, whatever it is that you might want, whatever it is that we can do, let's do it. I can't fight you anymore, God. And if all of that fear, and all of that worry, and all of that anger, and all that confusion, if those things could have been water, they'd have made a puddle. Because I felt them just drain away. Now, nothing special happened that day. I never saw the flash of light. There was no burning bush. They didn't even have a house fire anywhere around. But you know what I remember? I remember when I got home that I wasn't worn out and I wasn't angry and that I was okay with me. I was always me. And I thought, you see, from my old Baptist upbringing that I'd taken the third step. Now, that was it. You do it one time. Well, and what I found out is I did it the first time of many, many, many times. Because what I found out is that that morning on the side of the road, what I did was I fired Bo, the general manager of Bo's life. And I hired the best general manager that was available at the time, and that general manager is God. And as long as I can keep Bo fired and God hired, we do okay. We do all. Awesome. That's my biggest job today is to keep Bo fired. God high. Now, I'm running just a minute or two over, but I want to share with you just a few things, just two or three things that have been given to me since that time that I made that third step commitment that morning. Some of the things that have been given to me. One well, of the first things I share with you that's been given to me is something called freedom. Freedom from that anger, freedom from those resentments, freedom from that guilt, freedom from that confusion. Well, it's not that these things don't crop back up in my life, because they do. I crop back up in the form of daily living problems. What I have today is the freedom of choice of whether they stay and control me or whether I get with you and we get with God and we do something about it. The next thing I share with you that's been given to me is something called hope. That's our message anyhow. Light at the end of the tunnel. It ain't as good as it's going to be, but it's a darn sight better than it was. The next thing I share that's been given with you that's been given to me you gave me the new concept of God that I've already described to you that's working for me today. The next thing I share with you that's been given to me is you gave me back to me. Because you see, when I got here, I didn't know who I was, and I didn't know what I was. And the longer I stay around you, and the longer I do the things that you suggest that I do, I'm beginning to get a little bit of a handle on who I am and what I am. But even more importantly today, I'm getting a handle on what I am not. And that's becoming important to me because you see, there was a time in my life that I had to be all things to all people. And I had to have all the answers. And I'm beginning to get comfortable today with the fact that I can look at you and tell you, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't have to be all things to all people. But when you gave me back to me, you made me responsible to me for me. Now, that's been real important to me because as long as I can stay busy today being responsible for me, I just don't find the time to try to be responsible for you. And it's allowed me to turn you loose and let you go and put the emphasis back on me. But the last thing that I'd share with you that's been given to me is by far the most important thing that's been given to me in this program. And that is this program gave me you. Gave me you. Because you see, I'm like the frightened child. The mom has put the child, they said the prayers, and the mom's put the child to bed and tucked them in, and the child is to go to sleep. 
and then the storm starts, and it's raining, and it's thundering, and it's lightning, and the wind's blowing, and it's beating against the side of the house, and the child gets scared, and the child begins to cry. Mom goes back in there to settle the child down, and she sits on the side of the bed, and she says, Honey, you know we said our prayers, and you know that God loves you, and you know that God's going to keep you safe. And the little child looks up and says, Yeah, Mom, I know we said our prayers. And I know that God loves me, and I know that God's going to keep me safe. But just tonight, Mom, just while the storm's going on, Mom, I need somebody with skin on. And you see, God knew that about me. He knew that I was going to have to have somebody with skin on him. So he gave me you. Because that night came, May 17, 1988. Shirley and Sissy and I had to open the doors and look at the policeman that told us that Mike, our 20-year-old son had been killed instantly by that drunk driver. And you see, everything that you had taught me and everything that you had shared with me immediately went out the window. But I want you to listen to me for just a minute because I don't want you to get so caught up in the messenger here that you missed the message. And I'm thinking to tell you what this program is about. I went to the telephone and I called my mom. She said, I'll call your brother and your sister and we'll be over. And then I picked up the phone and I called my sponsor. And my sponsor, I had her on the other end of the line, and I remember Fran telling me, Bo, you got to hang the phone up. And I didn't want to. But see, I was scared and I was angry. And, and I didn't know what was about to happen. And I had her on the other end of the line. And I said, why i got to hang this phone up? She said, because we can't come to you as long as I'm talking to you on the phone. Within 45 minutes of us getting the message of Mike's death, A.A. and Alanon was in our home. And you didn't leave it. 24 hours a day, you did not leave it. Mike was killed on a Tuesday night, about 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock Wednesday night, in our front yard, there's 15 Alateens sitting Indian style with arms around each other in a circle of love with our daughter in the corner of where do you get that? Get it in rooms just like this, full of folks just like you. That's where you get it. That's where you get it. There was a period of time there because Shirley and I were in such shock that we were incapable of making a decision. But that's okay. You see, you were there. And you made the decision for us. And you made good decisions. You made good decisions. There was an even longer period of time because of my anger at God that I was incapable of praying. And when the time came in this old boy's life that I didn't have a prayer, you were there and you prayed for me. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that. I want to tell you one thing about Mike so you'll know what kind of boy we have. Mike was killed on a Tuesday night. And the last time I saw him alive was 7 o'clock Tuesday morning as he was leaving to go to work. And he walked by my chair where I was sitting with my cup of coffee. And he slapped me on the shoulder and he said, Dad, I'm going to work. And he took about three steps toward the door and he turned around in the middle of the room and looked me directly in the eye. And he said, I love you, Dad. And I said, go to work. The last words that I heard my son speak. Well, I love you, Dad. And you see, I have to thank you for that. Because when we got here, we were not living that way. And in rooms just like this, full of folks just like you, you taught us to live that way. And the deal is that that was nothing unusual. We did that every day. We did that every day. People ask Shirley and I, how do you deal with something like that? Well, the answer is, we're still dealing with it. We're still dealing with it. It's an ongoing process. I do not understand my death any more today than I did five and a half years ago when it happened. What I have been able to do in the last five and a half years with a lot of your prayers and a lot of your help and a lot of your arms around me and loving me, is I've been able to step back off of that bridge of reason back over towards that desired shore of faith where I can get to the point where I can accept this death. And I'm no longer angry at God. You know, it's like Shirley said, 
I thank God every day for loving me enough to allow me to be my sister's daddy. I did nothing, nothing to deserve that. That is just me. And you've got to love me quite a bit to allow me to do that. So just how strong is this program? Let me share this with you. My mind ain't capable of comprehending the power of the way of life we're involved in. I know this much. I saw my wife, a real live alcoholic, walk through the pain of the death of, lo of losing her son that way. And she did not have to take a drink. And I suggest to you that that's powerful. Powerful. The real live Alanon standing here in front of you, who didn't have to load the shotgun and go do something totally insane to a drunk driver. And you see, I had it planned. Had it planned in detail. But you were there. And you recognized it in me and you pulled me in a room and you shut the door and you confronted me and you made me talk through it. And you made me see the insanity of it. And I didn't have to do it. No, thank you for that. And it was an AA number that did that. An AA number. So I hope you understand as I close just how important you are to me. I hope you understand just how vital you are to my recovery and to my life. I need, I have to have each and every one of you, and I hope that you understand that. And if you do understand it, I want to close by making this deal with you. And here's the deal. I'm going to keep coming back. The room's just like this, full of folks just like you. And I want you to keep coming back. The room's just like this, full of folks just like us. And if I keep coming back, and you keep coming back, then hopefully our path will cross in as we trudge this road of a happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you on the way. Thank you.